Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we're sitting down with Jacqueline Hayes, who has been instrumental in serving her community throughout the years through the organization she founded and is president of the Chicago Help Initiative. Lewis Carr is the founder of Waymaker, Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, president of media sales at BET Networks, and the author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, Jacqueline Hayes will discuss her transition from working in real estate to founding and running the Chicago Help Initiative and how our organization is seeking to make a big difference in the lives of the homeless population in Chicago. Let's get started. Good morning, Waymaker community. And welcome to the Fireside Chat. And today's guest is Jacqueline Hayes from Chicago. And we're so thrilled and privileged to have you, Jacqueline. Welcome to the Fireside Chat uh, this morning. Thank you. I I appreciate it as well. I'm delighted that you feel I have enough to share with your your, your people that listen. (laughs) Well, you know, first of all, Jacqueline, Uh, We love to talk to waymakers, and we love people who are intentionally going out their way to do something for someone else to change their lives, their direction, their journey. So thank you for that. So let's start, Jacqueline. Your day job for decades has been commercial real estate. How did you get into helping the poor through Chicago Health Initiative? Tell us how you made that transition. Uh, it's not a total transition. I'm still doing real estate as well. I, I do retail leasing on Michigan Avenue and Oak Street. And in November of 1999, the city closed Lower Wacker Drive where a lot of the homeless were living. And they started coming and living in the doorways of some of the spaces I was leasing on Michigan Avenue. And I kicked them out. I said, get out of here. You're going to hurt my business. And then... I felt guilty. I felt, oh my God, this is awful. This is, this is where they feel safe and I'm keeping them out of there. And so I gathered together various um, institutions and organizations such as the Greater North Michigan Avenue Association, which is now known as the Mag Mile Association, River North Association, Streetable Organization of Active Residents, um, uh, Northwestern Hospital, Holy Name, Fourth Press and Catholic Charities. And we, um, I, I said, we've got to do something about this. First of all, this is where, this is how people are living. They've been thrown out of one location and now they're living on Michigan Avenue. And secondly, this is what the um, tourists that come to Chicago see. And is that a way for people to know about what we do with our homeless? And so we met for a year. We created a two-sided card of how to deal with the homeless that we could hand to them and also to um residents in the area. And um, it took us a year to get that done. And after that was done, they said, oh, we work so well together, let's do housing. And I thought, holy cow, it took us a year to do a card. I can imagine how long it would take us to do housing. And I was absolutely blessed. And one of the people that I hold in high regard, Monsignor Boland, who was the then uh, president of Catholic Charities on the South Street, offered me his dining hall. And he said, hey, Jackie, you can come here and, you know, feed the homeless if you want. And so that's what I did. Um, The first meal was served in March of 2001. And um, my first 
uh, meal provider was Mark Shulman from, at that time it was Eli's Place for State. Uh, and that's where the uh, Lurie Children's Hospital is now. But um, I had called up Mark because he was a member of the uh, Greater North Michigan Avenue Association. And I said, hey, Mark, I'm going to start feeding the homeless and I'll need a meal for 150 people. Would you be willing to do that? And he said, sure, Jackie, whatever. And he was so, so immediately responsive. I, I, I really didn't expect that. So I was really feeling good. And I said, I'm going to call all the other guys in the uh, hotels and restaurants in the association and ask them for a meal. May I tell them that you um, agreed to do it? And he said, oh, yeah, whatever. So I called the next guy. <laughs> and he said, oh, I don't know, Jackie. I don't think I, Mark's going to do it. And they all fell in line. So I had meals lined up. And they were amazing meals, really. I mean, nothing, you know, stingy about it in any way, shape, or form. The thing that was so interesting is at that time, because people didn't know to come to the facilities at 721 North and South Street, we had to have the police and um, the Department of Family Services go out and tell people to come there for a meal. And so really, though, once word got out, we had people, guests that came from all corners of the city from 95th Street on the south side, from Evanston on the north side. So we had a lot of people come to the meals and that was what we planned to do, just to continue to feed people. Um, nine months after uh, we started the meals, two things happened. One of which is I wanted to do a survey to see if the time was right, the food was acceptable, et cetera, et cetera. And the guys weren't filling out the survey. And I said, I thought we were buddies. And somebody said, oh, I can't read. So that started us doing programs that we did a, a, a reading program to help them get their GEDs and stuff like that. In addition to that, at nine months, Monsignor Boland came to me and he said, you know, I really like what you're doing. And it really stands for what um, part of our doctrine is all about to help other people. Do you mind if I feed on Tuesday? And I said, my God, it's his building. How nice of him to ask. And I said, sure, that'd be great. So uh, Catholic Charities feeds on Tuesday. Um, another one of my original partners, Fourth Press, did not have their building completed yet on, um, their new building completed yet on Michigan Avenue. And they came to Monsignor Bowen and myself and said, do you mind if we do Monday? And so, um, uh, Monsignor Bowen liked the idea of having Presbyterians in the house. And so he said, yes. And so on Monday, it's Fourth Press. On Tuesday, it's Catholic Charities. On Wednesdays, it's the Chicago Health Initiative. Thursday, um, Holy Name stepped up. And Friday was shared by Holy Name and Fourth Press. But once Fourth Press had their building on Michigan Avenue, they just do on Monday. And Holy Name does Thursday and Friday. Now, I will be a little blatant and say that uh, my meal on Wednesday is the most favored because of all the programs we have. We have um, reading, writing, computers, um, chair yoga. We have uh, an art class. We have a book club. We have, we have all kinds of programs. And this is something that our guests just really eat up. They really enjoy it. We're, we're there from um, approximately one o'clock to seven o'clock on uh, Wednesdays. 
and Cap and Cherries allows us to use their facilities for that. And so, 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 so Jacqueline, the, the Chicago Initiative really ignited a coalition of yep. organizations to sort of feed the homeless from Monday through Friday. Correct. And does, does that still exist today? Yes, it does. It does. And yeah. then the Chicago Initiative, I'm sorry? With one exception, COVID means that no one can go in the building right now. So the, the meals are, are not continuing in-house. Um, they are given a, a, people, if they come for a meal at their usual time, they're given a band meal kind of thing, so. So how many uh, people are you guys serving throughout the week? Today, are you talking about? I mean, today, yes, today. Today, throughout the week, we're serving about 5,000 people uh, wow. because we collect bag meals and we take them to 22 different locations around the city um, on the north side, the south side, and the west side to places. They're not all homeless shelters. Some of them are senior housing locations. Some of them are churches that have populations that have been amazingly out of work without jobs and are hungry. So we're, we're feeding the homeless, the disadvantaged, and the hungry. So um, that's the 5,000. And that's due to COVID because we can't really have a hot meal inside. We can't, we unfortunately aren't able to do our programs. Um, and, and prior to COVID, how many people were you guys serving? Um, 200 people a week, a hot meal. And so the, the 5,000 is a total of a year or what is that? A week. So we're doing that a week. So you're doing that a week and that's through all the different initiatives, correct? No, it's just through the bag meals. I mean, the, and, and to the, those different locations that I was telling you about, I think there's 22 or 23 different locations that we take. Got it. Else too. Got it. And have you continued the education program throughout COVID? Have you been able to do that? No, because we can't have them together. Now, one of our, our partners, Looking Glass uh, Theater, because we also had a program uh, called Arts and Culture. And what would happen is we identified at one time, we identified 20 of our guests and we arranged for them to go to arts and culture programs. So they've been on the Chicago boat cruise. They've been at the uh, Chicago 360 in the Hancock. They've been to Looking Glass Theater and every place else, which actually allows them to live the life like you and I can live, that we can go to these places. And it really brings them a sense of self-respect that they're able to do this. And Looking Glass is one of our really great partners and they were prepared to um, uh, do something Zoom wise. But the problem is, is that all of our guests don't have computers and stuff like that and it presented a problem. But we're about ready to start it. And what he, uh, Andy White, who is one of the founders of Looking Glass Theater, what he would like to do is uh, have conversations with them and actually create a play. Uh, develop a play that they would actually end up performing at Looking Glass. And so um, the thing that is sort of surprising to perhaps the general public 
is that just because you're homeless or, and or live in a shelter or something doesn't mean that you're dumb. And so many of our guests are super intelligent. Um, what we also would do at our meals is we'd hand out, make available uh, books and magazines. And a friend of mine uh, worked in several bookstores and was able to give us uh, books from those places when they were uh, out of date or something like that. And so at each meal, we'd have these piles of books on, on tables that they could take and give away. And some of them would take as many as five or six books from week to week. I mean, they were avid readers. So um, I, I, two, two of our former guests actually now work with me on Wednesday and Saturday, helping me put together the hot to go containers um, to, for the meals. They have made it through COVID very well, the pandemic. Uh, one of them now has is living in some senior housing in Lincoln Park. Uh, the other, while he's still at a shelter, he and he had had COVID while he was at the shelter. He's now um, uh, COVID free, and he's in the shelter because they know about the Chicago Health Initiative. They allow him to leave the shelter two days a week to come and help. So they they are just amazing, and they they actually help me better understand what's needed for those that are on the street. Um, so I noticed, Jacqueline, that you call them guests. Uh, I, uh, I'm assuming that's intentional. Tell us about uh, why you call them guests. Because that's what they are. They, they're, they're human beings that deserve respect. And, and just because they're homeless doesn't mean that they're bad people. And when someone comes to your house for a meal, they're a guest. And so they were coming to my house, if you will, or our house at Catholic Charities, and they were guests. There's no question about it. And, you know, the terrible thing that has happened with the pandemic is that I don't know who misses the uh, Wednesday meals more, the guests or my volunteers, because they are so bereft of not having to see each other face to face. Um, it, it, it's, it's been remarkable. Um, we have now, people call us practically every, every day saying, can we come and volunteer? Can we come and volunteer? Um, so we're hoping, um, Catholic Charities has advised us that starting July 21, we can have meals in their facilities once again, but only for 60 people. And there can only be five people at a table, um, we can't actually serve them. The meal has to be at their place setting. So it's going to be kind of a catchy time to see what happens. But um, how, how, how many homeless people are there approximately in the city of Chicago? Do you know? Well, I don't know what it is today per se, but one of the last times that they did the street count, it was close to 80,000 people, a lot. Now, again, that doesn't mean that all of them are really living on the street. Some of them are living in housing uh, or shelters. Some of them are, are moving from one family member's home to another, et cetera, et cetera. There are all kinds of variations. One of my um, buddies uh, lived on the red line. So, I mean, again, he, he had a place and he went and he did and he this and he was safe and he was warm and cold or whatever, you know, kept warm in the winter and chilled in the summer and stuff like that. But 
he 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 is a a person that needs help. So. So, so Jacqueline, what does the data say? Why most people uh, become homeless? Is it is it loss of jobs? Is it family structure, uh, or, or is there any common type thing? Trying to help our audience better understand how this happens to individuals. Almost any possible uh, thing is, is, is on the record here. I mean, mental illness, loss of job, alcoholics, uh, uh, drugs, uh, divorces, Etc. You know, all, all kinds of, there's any, any possibility. Um, one of my big uh, fellows that supports and helps at the meals, uh, he, he uh, really, um, his wife died and he became an alcoholic and he just lost everything. He had a major, major death. He was a general manager of a, a major retail store on, on Michigan Avenue, uh, but he just lost it all. Now he's not alcoholic any longer, but once he lost it, it's so hard to get it back. There's no way, you know, what happens is that they'll go and um, try to sign up for housing with HUD or something like that. And mm -hmm. they, they think that they're signed up and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. What they don't know, and we, we discovered this ourselves, what they don't know is that that sign up is only good for a month. <laughs> And if they don't get the housing in a month, they're waiting for nothing because their name is off the list already. When we discovered that one of our volunteers took the training to do the assessment or the sign up for people to get into housing. And that was shortly before COVID happened. And three months before COVID happened, we got six people into housing because we were right on top of it. But then COVID came along and now everything is worse than before because of of them being closed down and stuff like that. So. In, in your opinion, what should or can the, the city do to sort of help uh, reduce uh, the number of homeless or uh, help support? Certainly um, more make more housing available. Uh, and and um, there's all kinds of things. Building partnerships with organizations such as mine is, is a, a real winner as well. I mean, there are a number of us that work together very closely, but again, sometimes without um, the blessing of the, the city, it, it, has, it has a limited reach. But again, um, what happened over time uh, is that a lot of the mental health clinics were closed. They, they need to be activated again. They really do because people just need it. We have a partnership with the University of Illinois Medical Center um, and um, they had done a study about how many people really go to the emergency rooms and the cost that it, it represents. There was one gentleman that went to emergency rooms so often that they tallied up the cost of his visits and it was comparable to almost like a million dollars. They could have bought him housing rather than, you know, so again, there, these kinds of things are happening. And so we have to redirect how um, people are taken care of. So integrate healthcare, um, reinstitute um, 
mental health clinics, um, perhaps be more forgiving of some of the um, uh, criminal justice items, you know, like the uh, drug use and stuff like that. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different steps that can happen. But the one thing that is, is uh, also that I found very interesting along the way in, in starting this not-for-profit is that a lot of people, um, neighbors of mine, uh, had some concern about the homeless, but they didn't know what to do about it. So as long as with, with my organization, now they have a reason to participate and to help and to understand that these are just people like you and me. And for one silly thing that happened in their lives, they're out on the street or they're in, in the shelters or whatever. And it's very sad, very, very sad. That, well, that, that leads me into th this question. How can we motivate more people to sort of take action and be engaged in sort of helping the homeless and whether they're individuals or whether they are organizations or companies, uh, what can we do to sort of uh, motivate more people as we would say here, Jacqueline, is to be way makers for others. How can we do that? Well, I guess it's, it's to publicize things. And, and um, I, that's one of the reasons that we created our documentary uh, called I Have a Name. And that's exactly right. These people are not just bums on the street. They have a name. They are individuals. And we showed that. And um, by involving them in the um, arts classes and the uh, arts and culture program, et cetera, et cetera, we treated them with some self-respect or caused them to have some self-respect for themselves, which then motivates them to go to the next step. So um, I would love to make the documentary available to all kinds of people to see that, to experience that. Um, and I, I guess just publicizing it somehow, making sure that people do. Tell us about that documentary. Uh, tell us about more about that documentary. Uh, it's, uh, we won a, a, a two awards. One is best documentary at the Vatican and another was a silver award in Atlanta. Um, the documentary um, uh, was created by a woman uh, by the name of Lucia Morrow. And I had seen her documentary with regard to um, Mother Cabrini. And, and I went up to her and I said, hey, have you ever thought of doing one about the homeless? And she said, sure, yeah. I said, why don't you come and see what we do? So she came to Catholic Charities, first of all, She's coming to see the Chicago Help Initiative at Catholic Charities. Question. She walks in the room and the first person I introduce her to is a woman from Sinai, Chicago because Sinai, Chicago was working with us and doing the arts class. And so I introduced her to them. And then the next person that comes in the door is the, uh, a social worker from the Knight Ministry who does our HIV testing and hepatitis C testing. And so she's going on, wow. I said, well, we only are fortunate in having this room. We are not in ourselves, in and of ourselves, experts at anything, and we always call in experts to do things. So we have, um, like uh, as I said, the the night ministry, the um, CARA program. Uh, we have doctors and nurses at our meals. They come in and volunteer. Uh, we have 
all, we have a, every week at, at, on our meals, we would have a speaker. The speaker would only talk for about six minutes because not everybody in the room was interested in what they were talking about. Sometimes they'd be talking about a job and a lot of people didn't want a job or sometimes they'd be talking about mental illness and they didn't you know, want to deal with it. So they'd only talk for six minutes and those that were really interested could go up after and talk with them privately. So um, it's just, I don't know, it's just a, a, a way of communicating and, and learning to deal with each other much better. And the thing that, as I said earlier, the thing that is so remarkable is that our volunteers are so bereft that they are not interfacing with these guests. We were a family. We truly were a family. And um, it's important to put our arms around each other and help each other. And they helped us as well. They helped us um, smile and feel good and, and learn how to uh, communicate, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, it was wonderful. So, so, so Jacqueline, uh, clearly you, you uh, are being a way maker for uh, thousands of people. Tell us about uh, your sort of upbringing and your journey and who were some of the uh, way makers in your life? How did you get into commercial real estate and how did you become uh, successful at it? Uh, we would be remiss to talk about what you do, but we really don't know that much about you and how you got to this point. So can you kind of give us some of your background? Where did you grow up? Where did you get educated at? And how did you get into real estate? I uh, grew up on the Northwest side of Chicago in um, Jefferson Park and Norwood Park. Um, my father uh, was from Louisiana. He was a strawberry farmer. Uh, my mom was from, uh, uh, well, from Chicago, but she, so he, he was, his family originally came from Sicily. My mother's family came from Poland. And so um, that tells a little bit of a story about my background. I'm Polish and Italian, <laughs> but um, um, I did not go to college until I was 30. Um, I, um, I was the oldest of three children. And at that time, it was more important for the boys to go to college than the girls. And so I went to business school and I had a series of multiple jobs along the way that actually um, made a whole package for me to be who I am today. I started as a legal secretary, became an assistant office manager, was never going to move up in that job until that, the office manager died. And so I went and after 10 years, found another job and I became the office manager for Morse Diesel. Morse Diesel uh, was the contractor that built Sears Tower. And that was an amazing experience, just an amazing experience. My boss um, had a very volatile temper. And what happened, because the Sears Tower was the world's tallest, biggest building at the time, uh, we were picketed right in our, our lobby by Jesse Jackson and Cesar Chavez because they were looking for jobs for minorities. And so my boss would go out and start swearing at them. And everybody said, no, don't do that. It's going to get in the papers. So he would send me out. <laughs> and so I'd go and talk with them and I'd go back and report. And what ended up happening is that Morris Diesel got the subcontractors to all to agree to hire two minorities. And so I interviewed all of the minorities and we 
got, you know, uh, tons of people on the job that were minorities that probably wouldn't have gotten jobs much before that. So that was that. But then I um, ultimately got married. And because of that, I went to work and became an office manager for um, an accounting firm. And the accounting firm had a lot of real estate people that were part of it. And um, ultimately, I got a divorce. And I really wasn't as excited about working in a, a an accounting firm, I'm not a bottom line person. I like to investigate other things. And so Sam Zell had his offices down the hall and he had just bought the LaSalle Bank building, uh, which is now the Bank of America building. And he hired me to be the assistant uh, building manager. And so then I'm managing a, a million square foot office building. So here I'm starting to get closer to real estate per se. Um, but I had the real estate uh, uh, law behind me, the accounting behind me, the construction behind me, and now property management. Um, I went from there to um, starting a, a real estate brokerage company for a company out of Bloomfield, Michigan, because they wanted to start a brokerage. That didn't work out too well overall, because a lot of, I was, I was a female, <laughs> and I couldn't get anyone to come and work for me at that time that had been in the real estate industry that were already proven, uh, had a proven track record. So I had to hire people and train them. And um, ultimately what ended up happening one day is that an owner of a property called me up and asked me to come and talk to him about um, manage, uh, doing leasing in his downtown building, the Madadnock building. And so I asked him if he was talking to me individually or me as part of uh, the company that I was working for. And he said, however you want it. And that's when I decided to start my own business. And on very little money, because I, I made a deal with him, instead of a 100% commission, I'd only take a 75% commission as long as he gave me an office. So I had an office. The only thing I had to do was file in corporation papers and get business cards. And that's when I started my business in 1983. And ever since then- How I, many people were working for you then, Jacqueline? Well, it was just me at that time, but then I ultimately got up to six people, but then I realized that that was not very good because I had to train them. I was bringing in 90% of the money and paying 100% of the bills. And so that's when I decided to change things around again. Um, but uh, no matter what, and then the other thing is, is that I, I moved to where I live now in, at Harbor Point at Lakeshore and, and Randolph. I did not know how to drive a car. And so therefore I decided to focus my energies on Michigan Avenue, um, which is not the right reason to make that decision, but I did. And that's where you get paid the, the rents are the highest and the commissions are the highest. And so because of that, because I'm making a decision because I couldn't drive, <laughs> Um, I, I ended up doing a lot of leasing on Michigan Avenue and making lots of money, thank God. Um, so that was a little bit of a story. People that helped me along the way were varied and, and in a lot of different ways in helping me with my exposure in construction, my exposure with um, retail leasing, et cetera. Um, every, everything else, a, a couple of people in particular I give a lot of credit to Chuck Strobeck. He's no longer alive. He had a, a, a firm 
a real estate development firm and he helped me uh, at the LaSalle Bank building. And then one of my newest uh, people that I admire greatly is Mark Shulman. Mark Shulman has helped a great deal with the Chicago Help Initiative insofar as um, uh, providing meals himself. He, he, provide, he still provides a meal every, every year. Plus he provides um, dessert, uh, cheesecake for dessert multiple times a year for you know the holidays. Uh, if it's Valentine's Day or whatever, they can count on having cheesecake for dessert. So um, I, I can't begin to tell you the number of people who have been very important to me in my life. But again, um, it's, it's just, a, it's just a, a, an experience to, to move along and to see how, where I've been and how far I've gotten and what I'm doing today. And what I'm doing today is, is so meaningful as far as helping those that need help that I, and I think that some of the other experiences I had along the way have, have um, made me ready to do this. So, so in, in, in closing, Jacqueline, uh, talk to our audience uh, and, and inspire them for them to be way makers in some form or fashion like you have become. Give us a, a, a closing statement to the audience who may be sitting on the sidelines, but have the abilities and the energy and the resources to be a way maker. Well, one of the things that I have learned along the way, and I would suggest this to almost anybody. I am never afraid to ask anybody for anything. And I think that's what's allowed me to reach a sense of achievement. I've asked people for um, jobs. I've asked people for, for help, uh, advice, etc. I now I ask people. I go to I go to a restaurant and have a meal, and somebody will come come over and say, "How did you like the meal?" I say, "Oh, I love it. Great. Would you like to provide a meal for me for with my homeless?" You know, and so I'm never afraid to ask anybody for anything, and I highly recommend that that be part of anyone's philosophy. Do not be afraid to ask. All somebody can do is say no. And that is only not necessarily a 100% no. It's a temporary no. It's a no for that moment. You can go back again and ask them. So again, I just say be prepared to, to ask. And you, you shall get. You shall receive. I think that's a, a part of a, a gospel or something like that as well. So. so Jacqueline, thank you today for uh, being part of uh, the Waymaker Fireside chat. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time, but we appreciate more of the things that you are doing uh, for the homeless here in Chicago. So we wish you the best and we wish you uh, much more success at that particular endeavor and also in your real estate business. So thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. And I am hopeful that your audience will jump on board and help those that need help. Because again, we can help, we can help each other. That's, we're, we're, we should do that. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Jacqueline Hayes. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. 
you can connect with Jacqueline Hayes and the Chicago Help Initiative at chicagohelpinitiative.org. Don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at waymakerjournal.com. And be sure to enter the Waymaker giveaway by going to waymakercontest.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.